Well, hey folks, welcome to the podcast. I am here with my wife, Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and uh, we're about to listen to a teaching. This is from, uh, we've been doing a class on uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, Joey Bruno's been teaching that class. And uh, he needed to travel for a week. He asked me to, to fill in. And, and he also assigned me a topic. <laughs> uh, he, he wanted uh, me to talk about the annihilation view of hell, which is something that Joey and I have discussed along the way. And Sharon, it's something that you and I have discussed along the way. Yes, we have. And uh, uh, a few years ago, I forget how long now, it doesn't really matter. Um, I started wrestling with this one uh, as a, as a, a, I think a pretty, a pretty difficult theological question, Mm -hmm. which is how do we understand hell? What's our thoughts about that? And the traditional and majority view of the church for a very, very long time has been ECT or eternal conscious torment. The Mm -hmm. idea that people who don't have life with Jesus um, are eternally and consciously tormented forever and ever, which is the, I don't know, the hardest pill to swallow about what we believe. Like I, um, that's a, that man, that's a tough one. And um, it was, for me, what I always, always heard growing up, and it felt like one of those things you were never supposed to, you were never supposed to question. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came across people I really, really respected, who had a different view. Did some reading, started geeking out on it a little bit, and then once I started um, finding this to be a valid orthodox position. <laughs> I started pushing it onto you pretty hard because I wanted some company and I wanted someone I trusted to tell me whether or not um, I was just believing what I wanted to believe. Right. (laughs) Do you remember, Sharon? Oh, yeah. I remember just saying, okay, be careful because, you know, just just because we want to believe something or, man, that sounds better or whatever, we have to make sure we're not leaning towards Mm -hmm. certain ways as always. We always just want to go back to the word and... And I just had, um, I had the same thing growing up too. It's just, that's, that's just what was taught. And so what's fun is to go back to the word and just try to be like, okay, is that just this common belief in the air or is that really what the scripture is saying? So it's fun to go back and see and like search the scriptures and try to do it like, okay, as if no one ever taught me that in the first place. That's right. What does the Bible say about hell? And so I just think that's been a fun, like fun deep dive, really. I mean, well, not fun. It's still hell. But it's still hard. Yeah. It's still hard. <laughs> but it's been, but it's been really good to try to say, okay, like if I'm just reading the text and I'm just doing some research. And so for me, I, I find where I don't ever want to do anything that is outside orthodox or mm-hmm. I don't even want to be in the minority, you know, yeah. as fun as, as far as what Christians We're believe. We're pretty down the line. Yeah. We're pretty down the line orthodox to evangelical Christian yes. types. And so I think, I think for that reason, like we're not even ready to make this call. You know, but I just think it is one of the doctrines that has us questioning as we are just going to the text and just reading some um, other things. And as we have found that a lot of the early church fathers did believe um, Uh in this way, you know, that they didn't believe in, you know, eternal conscience torment, Mm -hmm. but that maybe there is something else. Maybe it's annihilationism or something like that. So I I just think it's an interesting topic. I think it's important that we haven't uh, made up our minds, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a really good way to study the scripture right now and sort of figure it out. Yeah, it's something uh, that I, I do I do find myself leaning toward. Like I think I think I lean pretty heavily in this direction. And yet the conversation is not closed mm-hmm. and, and frankly should not be because there are lots and lots of wonderful 
Bible-believing, sincere Christians who have a different conclusion on this subject. Mm -hmm. And those conversations, by their very nature, should remain open. And Mm so uh, you you guys are about to hear a teaching um, where I basically am trying to make the case that the annihilation view of hell is a valid one to be considered. Right. And we are not to disregard people who hold that position as just heretical because it seems weird that people... Uh, because we haven't maybe heard that, uh, or we haven't heard that except in sort of weird corners. I, I will say this. Um, there are people who hold to this view who I do not trust their scholarship, and I do think their bias is leading the way. And I do think the annihilation view is an easier pill to swallow. And in general, there are people who, have, who in my judgment, have a low view of Scripture, and um, they kind of play games with the text. Mm-hmm. And so they say, well, this, is, this isn't as difficult for me to accept and so I'm going to choose to accept that. I don't mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to ever do that. Like mm-hmm. I think I said it in the teaching. I'm, I'm my mind's racing trying to remember what I did or didn't say in the teaching, but I I think I said that if, if at any point God's justice seems unloving to me, then that means I'm wrong because God is love and I'm just a guy who's confused about a lot of stuff. So that cannot dictate the conversation. Um but if we, if we do, as you said, with the highest possible view of Scripture, just go back to the text and find that there's another valid option within the context of historic Christian orthodoxy, Right. then, then we should treat it as such. <laughs> and that's really all we're shooting at. Yeah, well, and I think it's important, obviously, to listen to the rest of the podcast, because you can even fill in the blanks right now of what you think annihilationism even is right Mm -hmm. and it's like no we still absolutely like it's clear there's punishment it's clear there's separation from god it's clear it's just whether or not it is forever and ever and ever amen and so i just think it's it's really it's really interesting and uh i'm with you another huge pet peeve of mine is when we think we're somehow more loving or merciful than god is Mm -hmm. like who are we kidding we just don't get it um and so it's just something we're trying to fully uh grasp and, and wrap our minds around so yeah, it's one of those areas where um, we can we can honestly consider things that might that might live a little bit in the gray and wrestle with safely within yes. the family of God and with an understanding, a mutual understanding of the authority of Scripture. Yeah, it, it's a it's a wrestle like many things. Yeah, so um, yeah, stay tuned uh, for the next few minutes. Uh, hear this teaching and maybe wrestle with it some on your own. Thanks, Sharon. Yeah, thanks. the button. <laughs> Hello everybody. Can everybody hear me okay? If not, I'm the sound guy as well. This thing where, where Joey runs his own slides, teaches, and runs sound, I'm like, man, I, that's way too much. I can't do all those things at the same time. Um, uh, there we go. That's how well I multitask. Good to see you. Let me say a prayer and then we'll get going. King Jesus, come and fill this place. Make us aware of your presence, Lord. Um, We can perhaps categorize a gathering like this midweek, gonna hit a topic, we're just gonna talk and not come into it with uh, an expectation to hear from you, perhaps to experience your your presence, your power, your kindness, your love. 
Um, and yet, Lord, I just ask that our hearts would be open to whatever it is that you have for us. And if, um, if we've limited this in some way, <clears throat> as far as what we might expect you to do, uh, shake us out of that. Uh, we don't want to put any limitations on you or your plan. So Holy Spirit, come move in this place. Help me to teach with clarity. Help us all to, to hear and understand as we hit a difficult topic, uh, one that is often debated, Lord, help us to um, have the right perspective, the right spirit of unity um, to help govern our thoughts. Um, yeah, so Holy Spirit, come. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to jump into this in just a minute. First, I want to show you guys a couple of books. <clears throat> our subject, it's so amazing that you guys came because I'm talking about, you could be anywhere. You could be anywhere and doing anything, and you came to hear me talk about H-E double hell. So that's really, it's really amazing. I know, I was like, that's, eh, we'll take the low-hanging fruit. <clears throat> but really, of all the things, but here, here we are. <clears throat> and to talk about a view of this, um, I wanna show you guys a couple of books before we get going. Um, there's a guy with a very strange name, Ed Fudge, Edward William Fudge. Uh, and he has been the best resource I have found on this subject. Um, these two books in particular, The Fire That Consumes and Hell, A Final Word. Um, this is the super technical, theological, hyper-detailed version. This is books that people like Joey Bruno and Anna Kitko read. This is the book designed for people like me. Uh, so <laughs> Hell, A Final Word is way, way more accessible. Um, so if you're looking for like a one-stop, like maybe you hear this and you think, maybe this isn't total nonsense, um, this would be the book I would recommend that you get. And then if, you're, if you really dive deep and you want to get into some of the technical questions, this would be the book that you would want to get. Okay, so we are going to talk about the annihilation view of hell and that particularly in contrast to the eternal conscious torment view of hell and um, the, or, or, or almost by short, um, the traditional view, the view that is held by most evangelical Christians in the world today. Um, and e eternal conscious tor torment, I'll call that ECT a good time, a good number of times for short, ECT. So that's what I mean. And I'm referring to this view that basically says all who do not know Jesus as Lord when they die will be tormented consciously forever and ever and ever. That's the name, eternal conscious torment. For 1,600 years, roughly, um, this has been the dominant view in the church, <clears throat> um, especially in the West, and in the West, especially, especially in the United States. It's very dominant here among evangelical churches in America. Now, I'm gonna present a view that isn't that, and I want you guys to take that very, very seriously. To, to consider a view that is not a view that has been held widely by the church for 1,600 years is a really significant leap to make. And um, I actually lean toward the annihilation view of hell, and I, I do not come by that lightly. There are very, very few things <laughs> that I do not line up with the historical church. And this is a position, again, 1,600 years by the vast majority of Christians. And so um, I'm going to go through this and, and try to present, uh, present it to you in a way that makes sense. 
I do not want you to think that I feel in any way flippant about this topic. Um, and I'm, I'm not eager for you to run off and abandon a, a, a view that has been dominant for 1,600 years. We need to take that really, really seriously. Um, the weight of church history is really significant in any theological discussion. And so what I'm presenting to you now is on the wrong side of that. So again, I just want to be very clear about that. The other thing, though, when I say 1,600 years, I, it's not 2,000 years. And um, for 400 years, the first 400 years, um, uh, ECT was not the dominant view. It's a little bit harder to nail down what would be the dominant view, um, but at that point, uh, for the first few centuries of the church, annihilationism would be uh, far more uh, common a view, as I understand it, and maybe a better scholar, or I'm not a scholar, but uh, like a real scholar uh, <laughs> would, might, would perhaps say otherwise. Um, but that, as I read it and as I understand it, this was the dominant view for the first, or a dominant view for the first 400 years, and far more so than eternal conscious torment. So I take that 1600 years very, very seriously, but those first 400 years, I take very seriously too. Sometimes church history, uh, it's a great thing to lean on. Sometimes though, it, the church has been wrong about some stuff over the course of the years. And, and maybe, maybe this is, uh, uh, one of the things. For me personally, uh, the ECT view went completely unquestioned in my mind for a very, very, very long time. And it seemed to me um, that people who argued otherwise, uh, against, it argued against the ECT view, um, to, to my judgment, seemed to be just openly compromising. Um, that they seem to have a low view of Scripture and that they're just, you know, ECT is a really tough pill to swallow. Like of all the things that we would like to not be true, eternal conscious torment might be at the top of the list. Like I would love for this to not be true. And so obviously we've got some really strong biases in play as we consider this. And as I came across people teaching something other than ECT, I found people um, who weren't very serious about the text of scripture. Um, and so I dismissed it whenever I came across it. Um, and, and the truth is, as I said, I, I, it, it is a, a view, a ECT is such an unsettling idea, um, but my attitude for that has always been, yes, it's unsettling to me, but if I think God is doing something unloving, I'm wrong, period. That's what that means. If I think God's unloving, I'm wrong. And so even though it's a tough pill to swallow, I thought, I'm not going to dismiss that. Who am I um, to question God's justice? and who are any of us, or all of us even, to question God's justice. And so to me, questioning this view of hell seemed like a good way to end up there. So I just, I'm gonna stay, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't go there. Um, but then I started coming across some perspectives that didn't fit that mold. I started coming across people whose perspectives I really, really valued. People who I knew did not play games with the text. And so when I say this, I wanna, I'm not trying to call anybody out, but I just want you to know, I'm not talking about Rob Bell or Richard Rohr or Brian McLaren. I don't know if you're familiar with these. These are, these are dominant, uh, increasingly liberal and, and increasingly lower view of scripture voices in our society today. Um, I don't trust Rob Bell's scholarship. He's a brilliant communicator and a brilliant man. I don't trust his scholarship. Uh, same with Richard Rohr, same with Brian McLaren. He wrote a book called generous orthodoxy, which was too generous and not orthodox. So like, I'm, not, I'm not on board. That's not what I'm talking about. I started coming across people who had no idea held this position, 
People like John Stott, I don't know if you are familiar with that name, but is one of the most significant evangelical teachers in the last 100 years. Really significant. Preston Sprinkle, who we're going to hear from. I'm going to talk about half the time, and the other half is going to be Preston Sprinkle on video. So, <clears throat> not like live via satellite, <laughs> YouTube. Um, um, interesting. I, it's, for me, hard to really nail down exactly what C.S. Lewis taught on hell. But what he taught on hell is a whole lot closer to annihilationism than anything else I can find, and it's definitely not ECT. Um, Gregory Boyd, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, again, hard to nail down exactly. Sounds a lot like annihilationism to me. Sounds nothing like ECT. In fact, he, he, he directly has opposed ECT. F.F. Um, F. Bruce is one of the most significant commentators um, we've had in the last 150 years and, and frankly one of my like top five favorite commentators. Um, and as I dug around, I was like, wow, these are names that really, like these are people I really, really trust. And then like most of the Anglican church, it's like, wow, most of the Anglican church. Um, and so these are folks not only not insisting on ECT, but leaning increasingly toward this annihilation view, or another name for it, aka conditional immortality, which is the term I much prefer, and hopefully you'll see why. And so I started digging around more at that point, and I found that some of these, actually many of the earliest church fathers, this was what they would teach. So Irenaeus, if you're familiar with that name, Justin Martyr, Ignatius. Best I can tell, by the way, John Wesley. John Wesley? like. John Wesley of the Wesleyans and of the Methodists, like they both teach ECT, but John Wesley, not so much. And so all of a sudden this subject had my attention. And uh, my conclusion from that was not then, well, the annihilation view must be right, not at all. Instead, it was something more like, I know for sure that these people aren't heretics. They're some of the best conservative biblical scholars in the world. Is it possible? Is it possible that another view other than ECT is worth consideration? So we're going we're gonna to consider this one. My goal, by the way, tonight is not to convince you of the annihilationist view. That is not my goal or of conditional immortality. I use those words interchangeably. It is not to turn you away from the ECT view. It just isn't. My goal is to convince you that annihilationists aren't heretics to be roundly dismissed. That's, that's my goal. And maybe we get to that, maybe we don't, maybe we get a little past that. That's all I'm trying to accomplish. So let me explain to you what the annihilation view of hell is, kind of in a nutshell here. Um, and, and first we'd say this, uh, the annihilation view says that hell is real, hell is bad, hell is punishment, hell is separation from God, hell is eternal. And so those are, those are all tough pills to swallow, each and every one of themselves. Uh, and I said all that to say, um, this is not an attempt to explain away the difficult thing that is the reality of hell. Um, that is not an attempt of what's going on at all. Um, it says this, that those who die without the gift of eternal life, okay, which means if you die without eternal life, then you don't have eternal life because Jesus is the only way to get eternal life and they rejected him, okay? Eternal conscious torment, this is sort of an important premise, so think about it. it I know we've kind of played games with the terminology, but eternal conscious torment actually requires you to live eternally. You, almost, you have to have eternal life so that you can be eternally consciously tormented. If you're dead, then you're not. I know we sort of played with, well, what's the concept of eternal death or ongoing eternal dying? But really, it requires you to have eternal life so that you can live in eternal conscious torment. Um, eternal suffering requires 
God to miraculously keep you alive through infinite agony forever and ever and ever. And these for those who theoretically don't have eternal life. And so that's, that's part of where you start getting stuck a little bit. Um, it says this, when you die, you, you go to Hades or Sheol, as Joey's talked about Sheol a number of times in the three compartments, which I hadn't quite heard it explained that way. I found that very helpful. Um, you're there until the final judgment. If you have eternal life through Jesus and him alone, then you go to be with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. If you don't have eternal life, i.e. you don't have the capacity to live forever, then you're thrown into what we will find uh, as we get to the end of Revelation in this study, the lake of fire. Um, interesting, Hades and Shoal at the end of Revelation are also thrown into the lake of fire as well. Um, and then Revelation, this is, maybe think about this term, it's helpful. Revelation calls this the second death. So there's the first death when we die here, and then there's a second death. Um, and then, this is also interesting to note as well, death itself is also thrown into the lake of fire at the end of Revelation and destroyed. So if eternal conscious torment is eternal death, as in the eternal process of dying, as ECT proposes, then what do we do with the final death of death itself? Do I need to say that again? As I said it, it sounded really confusing. So half said yes, half said no. If eternal conscious torment is eternal death, as in the eternal process of dying, what do we do when we come across in Revelation the final death of death itself? So that's one of the questions that it proposes. So you go to the lake of fire. We don't know what happens in the lake of fire. If you have a guess or a picture or something that you imagine, chances are it's more informed by Dante's Inferno than it is by the Bible. So we should keep that in mind. The truth is we don't know. What is it? I don't know. But it is a place of just punishment. It is a place of agony. Again, it's not good. And when that punishment is unto death, then the souls without the gift of eternal life die utterly. And you might go, but a soul can't die. A soul can't die. Well, not according to Jesus, but we're going to get to there in a, in a minute. They cease to exist at all. They are annihilated, and they can be annihilated because their immortality is conditional. It's based on whether or not they have received the gift of eternal life. That's the premise. It's okay if you're confused at this point. So when I got this premise at first, I read through it the first time, and I thought, all right, simple enough. I get it. It's basically like ECT, except it's not eternal. Okay, there's a point at which the suffering ends. Fair enough, but what about all the verses in the Bible that say that the torment is eternal? That's what I, I, that I had. I got a whole stack of things to push back against. The first one that came to mind for me is Matthew 25, 46, Jesus said, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so you, I, I'm, you know, searching the internet here, but I'm asking the annihilationists, what, what do we do with this? And what they point out is that eternal punishment doesn't have to mean eternal punishing. It means that the consequences of the punishment are eternal. Meaning, and just, this is just logical. There's nothing more permanent. There's nothing more ongoing. There's nothing more eternal than annihilation. Um, it's eternal death in itself, um, even when it's absolute, when it's annihilation, okay, and when it's death even of the soul, um, it is eternal because it's irreversible. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
Um, that's a fundamentally unending punishment because it's everlasting. It is, death itself is without end. But the gift of God is eternal life. So those who don't have the gift of God have death and they do not have eternal life. Um, the consequence of death is not being alive. And if you cease to exist, then that's an eternal punishment. Okay, maybe you buy that, maybe not. My next question was, well, what about the fire that never goes out and the worm that never dies? Matthew, or pardon me, Mark 9, 47 and 48 say this. This is Jesus speaking. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that sounds pretty eternal. What, what about that verse? And um, the annihilationists would say, well, actually, what about it? It doesn't say anything about ongoing punishment. It doesn't say that it's eternal. What it says is the fire is unquenchable, unquenchable. An unquenchable fire is a fire that cannot be put out. It doesn't stop until what is put in it is completely consumed and annihilated. That's what an unquenchable fire is. It's not quenched by water or by fuel or any substance that's placed upon it. It does the work of annihilation in full. That's an unquenchable fire. The worm that never dies, these are maggots. This is a reference, a reference to Isaiah 66. They never die because they see to it that the death and the annihilation are absolute and complete. Again, think about what the fire and the worm do. And then I had to pretty quickly conclude, okay, this text doesn't teach eternal punishment. It actually teaches total annihilation. Um, my next pushback as I was thinking about this is Revelation 14, 10, and 11. We'll get here in just a, a little bit with Joey. He'll, he'll take us there. It says this, He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. That sounds like eternal conscious torment to me. In fact, this is the verse that I, I really, when I'm, when I'm questioning this, I've got this one in my pocket. I'm going, for sure, there's, there's no way to explain this. Um, I can, I'll give you a sneak peek of how Joey is going to explain it um, when he gets here. Uh, Joey's many times talked about the hundreds and hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. This is one of the most direct Old Testament allusions in the entire book of Revelation. Um, and it is referring to Isaiah 34 and the prophecy and the prophesied destruction of Edom. So let me read that to you. Isaiah 34, 8 to 10, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a time of paying back Edom for its hostility against Zion. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land will become burning pitch. This is sounding pretty hellish. It will never go out, day or night. Its smoke will go up forever. It will be desolate from generation to generation. No one will pass through it forever and ever. So, um, when we get to it in Revelation 14, we'll see it. The third angel is, is prophesying this, uh, and the prophecy against um, Isaiah 34, they both predict punishment with fire and brimstone and sulfur, causing the smoke to go up forever and ever. Revelation 14 and Isaiah 34 are parallel passages. However, nobody suggests that Isaiah 34 predicts the eternal torment of the inhabitants of Eden because the eternal torment, uh, they're not predicting that because the prophecy interprets its own symbols as extinction, 
namely that Edom will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. Um, so this is talking about sort of a Sodom and Gomorrah type wipe out. And the language that it's used um, is that of, of, of total destruction, total annihilation, the smoke going up and the smoke of its torment going up forever and ever. This corresponds to Revelation 14. And that course, and, and so it's not as if Edom is going, to, is, is going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so there's a, there's a tension there. So this language of endlessness here, fire never quenched, smoke rising forever, it does not portray eternal misery. Rather, the smoke will go up forever is parallel to none will pass through it forever. This actually symbolizes the permanence of Edom's destruction or total annihilation. Okay. So, as other questions that can be asked, this is just, just a, a sampling. Um, but, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so like what might the smoke be there forever and ever? What might that be about? Yeah, I, my inclination is the memory thereof or the warning that it, the persistent warning that it is. Um, but I, I surely don't know. But that's my inclination. Yeah. So I, verses like this and others like it, I'm asking questions about these that seem to suggest eternal caution, conscious torment. That doesn't sound right. And then seeing again and again that if I looked at it honestly, they actually point more clearly to annihilation than to ECT. Um, and in the process of asking these questions, I was then confronted with a bunch of new questions from the annihilationist camp. So this is sort of the questions that were then presented to us. What about Matthew 10, 28? Jesus said this, Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If the soul is eternal without being given eternal life, then how is it destroyed? And, 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 and so ECT folks will basically say, well, destroy doesn't mean destroy. But why doesn't destroy mean destroy, right? Um, and I don't have an answer for that. Um, or what about this one? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, then why would we assume that those without the gift of eternal life live eternally in torment and that the wages of sin is actually not death, but living in eternal torment? Like, why can't death mean death? Another one that stands out is uh, Luke chapter 12. It's verses 47 and 48, and I didn't make a slide, I'm sorry. Um, but in that text, Jesus is talking about those who miss his return. They weren't ready for his return. And he says, if you're a church kid, you remember this. Sorry, it's not on there. Um, he says, some will be punished with few lashes, and others will be punished with many lashes. And so that raises, like, how can there be degrees especially in quantity of lashes, if the lashes are literally eternal? How, how can some be thought to have received fewer lashes if their lashings are eternal? Um, if I was in the fewer camp, I'd be like, this doesn't, <laughs> that's not fair. Um, what about John 3.16? 1 
For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, that so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but as a contrast to perishing, will have eternal life. Why doesn't perish mean perish? Um, and why exactly do we assume the immortality of those who don't have eternal life? So I'm going to read you a pretty long quote from this book, the accessible one. Um, and it's over a number of slides here, so lean in, hang in. Oh, wait, I put the wrong. I don't know how Joey does all this stuff at once. Okay, the word translated destroy in Matthew 10, 28 is the same Greek word that is translated perish in John 3, 16. And along with the words die and death, these two words, perish and destroy, are the words the New Testament writers use most often to tell what will finally happen to the unredeemed. Okay, die, perish, death, destroy. But when the advocates of the traditional hell read John 3.16 and hear Jesus say that believers, in contrast to, to rejectors, will not perish but have eternal life, or when they read Jesus' warning in Matthew 10.28 to fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, they automatically go into their defined with opposite meanings mode. Perish does not mean perish here, they say. Destroy surely cannot mean destroy. In fact, when these words are used to describe what will become of the wicked in hell, they mean that the wicked will never perish, as that word is commonly used, and they will never be destroyed in the ordinary sense of that word. Whatever word any particular translation or version of the New Testament might use, the original Greek verb in each of these passages is the same word translated perish in John 3.16 and destroy in Matthew 10.28. And so I, I skipped here, so there's a little bit of context missing, but now we're going to look at a list of the other times in the New Testament that, the word, that this word, translated perish, destroy, appears in the New Testament. And he says, ask yourself the original, ordinary, plain meaning, meaning of each main verb. Here are the examples. The disciples are about to perish in a storm, Matthew 8. The Pharisees seek to destroy Jesus, Matthew 12. Someone loses their life trying to save it in Matthew 16. A, view, a vineyard owner executes the murderous tenants in Matthew 21. A king sends his troops to destroy murderers, Matthew 22. Someone perishes by the sword in Matthew 26. The crowd asks to destroy Jesus, Matthew 27. The high priest says it's better that one man die than for a whole nation to perish, John 11:50. An insurrection or false messiah perished at the hands of Rome in Acts chapter 5. Many Israelites perished in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and 10, or were destroyed there, Jude 5. And some people perished in the rebellion of Korah. Those are the examples where that word is used. Here's what he says, it's quite obvious that the authors of these 11 sentences expect us to read these verbs of destruction with their basic face value meaning, isn't it? Why should we not understand perish and destroy equally literally in John 3.16 and Matthew 10.28, where we perish without eternal life and the soul is destroyed in hell? I keep going. I don't know. We're, we're doing okay on time, maybe. 1 Corinthians 15.53. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. 
If every soul is eternal, then why does it have to put on immortality if it's already immortal? By 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Again, if every soul is immortal, then why does only the gospel bring immortality? What about Genesis 3.22? The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and then live forever. If every soul already lives forever, then why would there be any concern about man eating from the tree of life and living forever? All right, so, so much of this hinges on one idea, the unconditional immortality of the soul, okay? Think about what this means. That means every soul is without condition, always eternal, okay? If the soul is eternal, if it is indestructible, it cannot be destroyed. So let's just think about this. If you assume the immortality of the soul, and then when you read what the Bible says happens to the wicked when they are when they're unredeemed and die, which it says things like this, they are destroyed, they perish, they burn up like chaff, they're cut down like grass, they vanish, they will be no more, they wither away, they melt like wax, they are stru- stubble before the wind, etc., etc., etc. I could have listed 50 or 100. If you assume immortality for every soul, then those things just can't mean what they appear to mean. Like the plain meaning of them, you have to work around it. They can't mean destruction of a soul if a soul is eternal. They have to mean then, what's the option? The only option is eternal conscious torment. Eternal life, but clearly... The, the Bible really paints, paints a very clear picture that once we've made our choice, we've made our choice. There's no turning away. And so um, the only option that you're left with logically, if you assume the immortality of the soul is eternal conscious torment. But if you assume that the soul is mortal until it is clothed with immortality, the way Paul said it. So if a soul that has not yet been given eternal life, a soul that has not been clothed with immortality, if you assume that it is then mortal, if you assume that we aren't eternal unless we receive the gift of eternal life, which is the language we find again and again in Scripture, then all those images that say that we go away can actually mean what they say. And we don't have to start jumping through all these hoops to explain why perish doesn't mean perish, and destroy doesn't mean destroy, and death doesn't mean death, and and, and wither away doesn't mean wither away, and will be no more doesn't mean will be no more. And we also then aren't left trying to reconcile something completely irreconcilable about a God who is love. Now, God's justice is not subject to our capacity to reconcile it, okay? So I want to make sure, like, our opinion of God's justice is not the standard here. But... there is sort of this irreconcilability about eternal conscious torment. That's not the ultimate standard, but it's, it's a measure. This God who is love and this idea that he would punish his creation eternally and infinitely, giving them the capacity, miraculously, to survive eternally, 
so that the anguish could be forever and so that the anguish should never end. Now, that cannot be the straw that stirs the drink, but it is a piece of the puzzle. Um, there's a story, it's, I don't know if it's true, it's like a, a lot of stories that get passed on, but it's of a, a sort of a revival style, hellfire and brimstone preacher was talking about the eternality and, of, of hell and conscious torment. And uh, one of his listeners purportedly asked this question, what will they do when the man grinds his teeth completely away? Remember there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? What about when their teeth are totally gone? To which the preacher replied, well, the Lord does not say specifically, but I suppose he will just give the poor fellow another set of teeth. <laughs> Again, that doesn't, that doesn't drive it. But that picture is it's part of the analysis. It's part of the analysis. Well, here's the question. What if we aren't unconditionally immortal? What if we don't have immortality unless God gives us eternal life? And so, as I was wrestling with that, that left me wondering one very important question. Where in the Bible are we taught this idea of the unconditional immortality of the soul? And I was absolutely stunned by the answer, which wasn't actually hard to find. It's not from the Bible. Like it's, it's just, it's not. In fact, it's not even a secret. It's from Plato. Plato, the brilliant philosopher who lived about three or four centuries before Jesus, okay? Many of the early church fathers did not have a Platonic worldview. So if you, if you think the way Plato thought, then you have a Platonic worldview, okay? They didn't have platonic worldviews. And people who don't have platonic worldviews, who don't assume the immortality of the soul, which Plato taught, that was one of his anchoring teachings, if you, don't, if you read the Bible without assuming the immortality of, of the soul, then you end up doing what the early church fathers did, which is they didn't even conceive of eternal conscious torment. It, it just wasn't in the language. You just can't find it. Um, but here's what happened. There was one very, very influential, very forceful um, early church father. You may have heard this name, Tertullian. And he insisted upon this idea of the immortality of the soul. He wrote widely about it. He wrote a book about the soul and its immortality that was widely um, spread, and he was very effective in it. And so the question is, well, where did Tertullian get the, this idea? And there's a lot of debate. You can get in some weird corners of the internet and people are biting each other's heads off over where did Tertullian get this idea? And I don't understand the debate. Like I might be missing something because, well, I will just quote Tertullian. I may use therefore the opinion of Plato when he declares every soul is immortal. That's from his book, Resurrection of the Flesh. And so here's what this book said about that. Most important to our inquiry is Tertullian's reasoning that the immortal, uh, about the immortal soul in hell. When Jesus warns that God cannot destroy the soul, we should not think of destruction, said Tertullian, for immortal souls cannot be destroyed. Jesus really means that the soul will suffer conscious punishment in hell. Through Tertullian's influence, we might say pagan Plato joined the Christian church. So that was the catalyst, but here's the really big one. 
The really big one came in the fourth century with St. Augustine, the St. Augustine, or Augustine if you're pretentious and well-educated. <laughs> okay. St. Augustine was the most influential Christian thinker since the Apostle Paul. I mean, he shaped the church, just an absolutely massive, towering figure. His thinking just shaped the development of theology to this day. So 1,600 years, I mean, he's the biggest influence by far. And he absolutely insisted upon the immortality of the soul. And he insisted upon, really the only logical conclusion you can then draw, despite all the verses saying otherwise, he insisted upon eternal conscience and tor torment. Well, where did he get the idea of the immortality of the soul? Does anybody know what St. Augustine did before he met Jesus? He was a professor. Does anybody know what he taught? Philosophy. What kind of philosophy? Platonic philosophy. <laughs> he, was an he, was a, he was a professor of Platonic philosophy. Then he met Jesus. And then that worldview mapped over Scripture, and he drew the conclusions that you draw, in spite of the conflicts, that you draw when you read the Bible assuming the immortality of the soul. So here's the thesis of, and now this is why it is for me the preferred terminology, conditional immortality. The Bible does not teach the immortality of the soul, but teaches instead that human immortality is, is God's gift to the saved, given in the resurrection to them alone. If you read the Bible through those lenses, then eternal conscious torment like falls way short. In fact, I, I think just, and I think we saw this in the first few hundred years of the church, it's highly unlikely that you would even conceive of eternal conscious torment, as many of the early church fathers never did. And then, if that's the reality, then so much of the angst and confusion and disillusionment around eternal conscious torment goes away with it. And I think that it should, because I'm, I don't think it's a biblical idea. I think it's a platonic idea. And with that platonic idea set aside, looking only through biblical lenses, then for my money, the annihilation view stands just head and shoulders above all the others. Suddenly those literally hundreds, you'll see in the, in the video, hundreds of other views or, or, or other, other um, references to what happens with destruction at the end. Um, all of a sudden they make sense. So that's the premise. Uh, let me be very, very clear about this. Please don't misunderstand me. Um, I am at the moment uh, leaning and feel, I feel pretty strongly that I, toward the annihilation view. You don't have to agree with me. You don't. Eternal caution, con, ECT. <laughs> ECT is an orthodox biblical position. And I'll remind you, it is the majority position in the church for a very, very, very long time. Wonderful, brilliant, sincere people disagree on this subject and they still walk in unity. Okay? And so this isn't something we break fellowship by, over. This is not a test of orthodoxy. Let me give you an example. The two best scholars that I'm aware of, there are others that I don't know, but the two best, I think most capable scholars in our church that I'm aware of are Joey Bruno, Annihilationist View, and Anna Kitko, ECT. I am happy for them to both be in our church, and if you've been paying attention, I'm happy to give them both a microphone and a platform. 
because they are orthodox, Bible-believing Christians who have the highest possible view of Scripture, and I respect their input remarkably. I also love the fact that they're not freaked out by things that aren't text tests of orthodoxy if there is an absolute unity, okay? And so maybe you find this particularly compelling. I would say don't then decide because you picked up what I was putting down tonight. I would say grab the book, grab another book, get something from the other perspective and work it out on your own. This I don't want you to just take it and then, and then you know, because sometimes, and this is least true of me, I usually go with the last really good argument I heard. <laughs> So, and that's just the truth. And if I debated Anna, I from the Annihilation and she from the ECT, she would win. She's smarter than me. If I debated Joey and I took the ECT position, he would win. He's smarter than me. Sometimes it's about, well, what's the last good argument you heard? Okay, and I want us to be mindful of that and not discard a doctrine that's been 1,600 years, the dominant one. So again, let's not be flippant about it. But for me, today, these are the last few books I read. <laughs> Maybe if I read another one, I would land otherwise. Um, but I do find it really compelling. All right, let's take a, a little bit of a break. We'll start a video from Preston Sprinkle, and that will take us actually through the end. Hello, Valley Christian Church. It's good to be back with you to talk about this important topic of the doctrine of hell. Uh, I hope I didn't stir up too much trouble uh, talking about three Christian views of hell last time. Um, again, I just I can't emphasize enough how passionate I am about properly understanding the issues that we're wrestling with before we seek to uh, decide which one is more biblical. I think it's really important that we give each view a fair shake uh, to truly seek to understand before we seek to refute. I know all of us probably come at this conversation with lots of presuppositions, lots of things that we think are true about what the Bible says about hell. But I've I've learned over the years that it's it's a lot m more of a complicated topic than I had originally thought, and so I want to uh, have you uh, go down that same journey that that I've been on for for many years. So um, if you were here last week, or if you weren't here last week, um, you know that we were talking about three uh, Christian views of hell. Um, three Christian views of hell. I'm going to pull up my slide here just so we can. Uh, dig into that. Um, okay. Three Christian views of hell. And again, just to clarify what I mean by three Christian views is not that there are three equally valid views that are all taught in scripture necessarily. Um, but that there are three views of hell that have been held by historic Orthodox Bible believing Christians throughout the centuries. Okay. The three Christian views, um, are eternal conscious torment, which is the dominant uh, view that has been held by most Western Christians, at least. Um, conditional immortality, sometimes known as annihilation, um, has been held by a minority of believers, uh, but has also, you know, been held throughout the centuries. And then we have, of course, uh, ultimate reconciliation, sometimes called universal salvation, um, that has been held by some as well. Now, um, yeah, just a, a super brief uh, explanation. Again, eternal conscious torment says that when Jesus returns, he will raise the dead and there will be judgment day. Everybody will face judgment. And those who are followers of Jesus will go into eternal life. And those who deny Jesus, who rebel against Jesus will go away into, according to Matthew 25, eternal 
punishment. They will be punished for uh, their um, behavior, punished for be rejecting Christ. Um, uh, annihilation or conditional immortality says that same scenario agrees with all that. It just says that when people do go to hell, they will not live forever and ever and ever. Rather, they will go into a place of punishment and they will um, they will die. Like death is the punishment for sin. Ultimate reconciliation, in a sense, ultimate reconciliation agrees with eternal conscious torment in as much as people, when they go to hell, they are not annihilated. They don't just die. Rather, they keep living, but they will have, an, say, an endless opportunity to turn back and turn to God. And God will always accept the repentant sinner that turns to him, whether on this side of life or the other side of life. Now, my journey began um, almost 10 years ago when uh, there was a book published by Rob Bell. Some of you remember Rob Bell's book, uh, Love Wins. Love Wins, uh, I thought was a really provocative book. I thought there was a lot of good things in, in the book, but one of the main theses theses in the book was that um, perhaps is kind of how you framed it. Perhaps God's love will always be open to those who turn to him. Perhaps God's love will melt the hearts of every person who has ever lived. And so he basically um, challenged the traditional view of hell. He challenged eternal conscious torment um, in particular and argued for something that would be similar to um, ultimate reconciliation. And that book just blew up. People were like, what in the world? I thought Rob Bell was a Christian. And he, um, yeah, the aftermath didn't, didn't go too well. So I remember reading the book and being intrigued. I honestly was. I was thinking like, man, I I haven't thought about that and haven't thought about this. And and I was really wrestling with this topic as a result of reading that book. And so um, at the time I was teaching at a Bible college that Francis Chan was the, um, the Bible college that Francis Chan had founded. And so both of us, both Francis and I kind of got together and talked about Rob Bell's book and what do you think? And long story short, we decided to write a response to Rob Bell's book and not, not the kind of response of, we know he's a horrible, big, mean, ugly, bad person, and we're going to show why. But we wanted to write a response saying, what does the Bible actually say about hell? Like, what? Is he right? Um, part of me kind of wants him to be right. Um, is, is it biblical? Like, it, you know, he's, he's saying we've really misunderstood what the Bible says about hell. Is that, is that, is that true? Um, because we have misunderstood things throughout church history. Like, Christians do misunderstand things. So both Francis and I we looked at each other and said, like, I've never done a deep dive study of hell in the Bible. Have you? I'm like, no, I haven't. I just thought it was a done deal. Like hell, we both thought hell meant eternal conscious torment. That was a belief we grew up with. We just assumed that to be biblical, but neither of us had done our own study. Neither of us had actually gone back to the text of scripture to see what the Bible says about hell. And so we spent some time doing that and that, and the result of our joint study is this book, Erasing Hell, that was published in 2011. Some of you have read it or are reading it right now. Now, in that book, um, our main goal was to raise the question, is hell real? 
like a place of punishment in the afterlife? And is it reversible? Okay. Is it a real place? Is, is it is it not necessarily that there's literal fire, literal flames, but is there a place of punishment called hell? Is that what Gehenna means? We looked at the word Gehenna la, uh, last time. Um, and so we wanted to look at what the Bible says about that. Um, our, so our main goal was really to look at hell in light of the um, ultimate reconciliation position that says that, yes, there's a hell, but people will be rescued out of that place. That was the main question we were asking. We weren't actually analyzing um, whether or not the annihilation view of hell was correct or not. But we did spend about two pages on what we called the duration of hell or the duration of the punishment. And in those two pages, we concluded this, that the debate about hell's duration is much more complex than I had first assumed. We write, we write it, even though it's a jointly written book, we write in the first person singular I. Um, it was much more complex than I had assumed. While I lean heavily on the side that it says it is everlasting, I am not ready to claim that with complete certainty. So we do say we believe in eternal conscious torment, but we do kind of give a nod to the annihilation um, position. Um, the one thing we did land pretty confidently on is that we didn't feel that the ultimate reconciliation view was best represented the scriptures when it came to eternal conscious torment versus annihilation. We're like, that's ah, a little more messy. It's a little more dicey. In fact, both of us, and this is just to give you some insight, both of us were kind of bl- taken back a little bit and how much evidence we did see for annihilation. We didn't think there was evidence for annihilation. We didn't grow up with that as an option, but we did see certain passages and themes and verses that did seem to suggest annihilation. So we, we didn't want to land. We didn't want to go beyond the Bible. We wanted to land where we thought the Bible was leading us and not land so strongly. So as to ignore some counter arguments that we found to be fairly legitimate. Um, now, um, why do we land on that, um, on, on eternal conscious torment? It was largely because of the big three, these big three passages that I discussed, um, in, in the last, uh, talk, uh, Revelation 20, Revelation 14 and Matthew 20, 25, uh, 46. Um, let me be honest with you guys. Um, I remember, after writing that book, thinking, I think there's a lot more to this conversation than I had realized. And even though our whole point in that book wasn't to argue against or for annihilation or whatever, like the whole annihilation position, not the, not the position itself, but the biblical evidence that we found in support of it really intrigued me. So I began a journey that, that was back in 2011 when that book was published. And I began a journey reevaluating whether or not there's something to this annihilation view. When I say reevaluating, I'm, I'm saying I'm going back to scripture. I'm looking at texts. I'm looking at arguments. I'm looking at counter arguments. I'm, I'm reading books that have been written on the doctrine of hell, both from an annihilation perspective, perspective and, and those who hold to a eternal conscious torment view that are re- refuting the annihilation perspective. And here are some of my assumptions that I hold to now and that I held to when I sort of 
continued on that journey of understanding the doctrine of hell. Number one, the Bible is God's inspired word, and the Bible should dictate our beliefs. Hands down, I'll go to the grave believing that. I'll take a bullet for that. If the Bible is God's word, then the Bible must dictate our beliefs. Sometimes our interpretation of the Bible can be difficult and messy and there's sometimes the bible itself can can be complex but at the end of the day the bible is our authoritative guide on belief and practice another fundamental belief that i have that i hold to this day is that god is god we're created he can do whatever he wants psalm 115:3 is my life verse our god is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases that is a fundamental presupposition of how i approach god the god of the bible is that he is god i'm not he can do whatever he wants i don't have the right as a created being to put god in the dock and to pepper him with questions and to make him fit my presuppositions of what god should be and and how god should act god is god we are not we should not formulate our view of hell based on emotions emotions aren't always bad but they can be misleading um, it's hard for people to stomach any belief in hell. But just because it kind of doesn't resonate with our emotions doesn't mean it's not true or not. We can't say, as I said in the last talk, well, I could never believe in a God who would dot, dot, dot. All we're doing there is creating God in our own image. And I don't want to worship somebody that I've created. If I've created a certain view of God because uh, uh, you know, a, a God must do this, must do that because of how I think justice should be executed. Then all I'm doing is creating God in my own image and my own emotions. And I don't want to worship a God that looks too much like me. <laughs> I think that's a dangerous place to be. My other uh, presupposition is that sometimes traditional brief beliefs are wrong. Um, Tradition's not bad. I'm not anti-tradition. I think there's absolutely a place for tradition. And it's kind of impossible to read the Bible apart from some tradition. I think tradition informs our interpretation and informs our lenses that we read the Bible through. That's just the way it is. Um, But sometimes tradition is wrong. Sometimes your tradition is wrong. Sometimes my tradition is wrong. Sometimes church history, church tradition is wrong. Um, so just because there, there has been a sort of mainstream traditional belief on hell, um, in the Western church again, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's correct. So which one is more biblical, eternal conscious torment, conditional immortality, or ultimate reconciliation? Um, while I used to hold to eternal conscious torment, it's what I grew up with. It's what we lean towards in erasing hell. And um, I also, um, in erasing hell, and still to this day, do not think ultimate re- reconciliation best represents the scriptures. Um, even though part of me, <laughs> I've often called myself a hopeful universalist. Like I kind of, I kind of, wouldn't mind this view to be true. And it's still maybe. I like that. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. I'm a fallible interpreter of scripture. But based on my ongoing study, I just haven't seen um, as much biblical evidence for ultimate reconciliation. Um, I have leaned towards 
not lean towards, I have landed on um, the view that I think conditional immortality or annihilation best represents the totality of scripture. Now, even by saying that, some of you might be tuning out. Maybe you're yelling slurs at the screen like I'm a heretic and and want to burn me at the stake. I've had some of those responses. Um, But again, my, my main concern is not to line up with tradition, not to say something that pleases somebody else's presuppositions. I will go to the grave. I will go to the grave and take a bullet for making sure that my beliefs best are best rooted in the, the, the best understanding of the biblical text. The question is not which view is more traditional, which view is more widespread, which view uh, resonates with my denomination. The ultimate question is which one is more biblical. And while there's arguments for each of these three views, okay, we've looked at some texts in the last talk. Um, I do think that when all is said and done, when we look at all the arguments, the biblical arguments, the counter arguments, from my vantage point, I do see conditional immortality being the um, the view that best represents a totality of of reading scripture. Now, let me uh, two more qualifications. Number one. It, and I'm going to, I'm going to explain this to you, like why I hold to this view, why I have moved from eternal conscious torment to a, a conditional immortality. A few things. First of all, I'm going to explain my journey to you and why I read the text this way. Um, I want you, my only goal is that you would simply think about it. I am not going to say you must believe this. This is the only way to read the Bible. This is the only, I'm, I have the corner market on the correct view of hell. I'm not at all saying that. Every Christian is responsible for making sure their beliefs are rooted in scripture. And my only goal at the end of this talk is that you too would be firm in your beliefs about what the Bible actually says about, about hell. Okay. Um, I, I think it would be unfortunate if anybody listening kind of sat back with the arms folded and said, mm-mm, mm-mm, and wasn't willing to open up the text for themselves to see if uh, this view has any merit. I'm not, again, you don't need to believe in it. I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to give a quiz at the end of this talk, <laughs> pass or fail. Um, I just simply want you to see how I have arrived at this position. Um, I think there's good godly people who hold to all three of these views actually um absolutely the majority of evangelical biblical scholars at least in the west um hold to eternal conscious torment there's a good number of i would say british or european uh, evangelical biblical scholars who would hold to conditional immortality some would even hold to ultimate reconciliation um but certainly in america at least um the eternal conscious torment view is still the most popular evangelical position. And I mean, no absolute disrespect or anything against um, those who hold to this view. All right, enough caveats. Let's jump in. And I want you to see how I have arrived at this position. First of all, there are so many Old Testament statements about God's judgment of those who are rebelling against him, God's judgment of the wicked. And in all of those passages in the Old Testament, we'll look at a bunch, um, the language used to describe the future state of those who reject God is language of destruction, language of finality, language that does not convey some idea of ongoing torment, but language that, that 
refers to the death and end of those who be considered wicked. I know wicked is not a term we typically use a lot today, but the Bible uses it quite a bit. The wicked shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, um, not tormented. Um, the wicked will be like grass that sinks down into flames. Think about that I- image. What happens? You can go do it. You can go take your five minutes, go outside, you know, light a fire and then throw grass into it. What happens there? Does the grass just, is it there in the flame for an ongoing state never ending or does it pass out of existence? Is it annihilated? Clearly it's the latter. They will become like uh, dead bodies, like refuse in the streets. They will become like dead bodies, not bodies who are living forever or being tormented, but dead. No more life. Their life ceases to exist. The wicked will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are bur- sorry, this is cut off again. That, that that are burned in the fire is how the rest of the verse continues. This is um, Isaiah. Uh, 33, 12. Okay. Um, I'll keep going. Cause there's so many texts I'm going to look at. I look, I, 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 <laughs> uh, I, I, am not going to apologize for overwhelming you with, with the text. Okay. I'm going to give you text after text, after text, after text. Cause one of the, the things that I want you to see is that there is at least biblical merit to this view. Again, even if you're like, I still don't believe it. I don't buy it. I hold to one of the other two views. That's totally fine. All I want you to see is that it simply would be wrong to say, if you hold to annihilation, you're not being biblical. Cause I get that accusation sometimes. Preston, I thought you used to believe in the Bible and no matter how many times I point to scripture to justify my view. Some people say, you're just not being biblical. I'm like, here's the Bible. You're not being biblical. Here's the Bible. So I've gotten in the habit of saying, okay, I'm just going to overwhelm you with the text of scripture so that you can still disagree with my interpretation. But please don't say that this view is wrong because it's just simply not biblical. I think that's a lazy, um, not accurate, uh, accusation of this view. Let's keep going. Uh, God tramples the wicked and their lifeblood splattered on my garments on the day of vengeance when God trampled down the people in anger and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And this is in kind of more of a future kind of leaning passage talking about God's future judgment. And again, it gives a picture of some kind of finality. No more life for those who rebel against God. Those who forsake the Lord are destined to the sword. All of you shall bow down to the slaughter. All of these images are of death, of slaughter, cessation of life and not ongoing torment. Let's keep going because there's many others and I'm only, I'm still, I'm, I'm being very selective here. There's, there's many other passages I can look at Isaiah 11. Then this is kind of an end time passage. This is where we get the lion will lie down with the lamb. Is that the wolf? The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Um, uh, we have a picture of the second coming of Jesus in Isaiah 11. So in a very end time context, it says God will kill the wicked with the breath of his lips, kill, not torment end the life of. The wicked will be slain by the Lord. The righteous will look upon the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against the Lord. And this is the passage where we get the whole image of the worm shall not die. The fire shall not be quenched, which some people take to prove eternal conscious torment. Well, the, the text from which those images come from the undying worm, the unquenchable fire come from this passage that clearly teaches, um, 
the annihilation of of the wicked that that uh, that there will be no more life left in these bodies they are they are dead bodies that have um been destroyed by god um Another one, the, the day, this was like, and I understand these images are kind of gruesome and, and they are images, but they're images that convey a, a deeper theological point. Um, and th- this one is really disturbing, actually. Uh, Malachi chapter four, the day of the Lord will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every e- evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire. Not a root or branch will be left to them. So the, so the image of fire is not a means of torture or torment. It is the means of disintegration, of annihilation. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, clearly talking about uh, end time future judgment. And again, the image, if, we, if we're going to ask the question, Malachi, are you talking about the never ending torment of the wicked or the destruction and 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 um yeah ending the life of the wicked clearly the image here is of the latter these images are of death slaughter the cessation of life and not of ongoing torment uh throughout the old testament and in the new we see uh the story of sodom and gomorrah being a picture of what god is going to do to those who reject him um what he's going to do in the end i'm not going to um you can, you can look at these passages. Uh, in the New Testament, Sodom is viewed as an example of what is going to happen in the future judgment. So this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is very much a New Testament thing. And I just, I included these references here. These, these are two um, first century Jewish writers. Um, and I just list those to show that it was very common in first century Judaism to use the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a picture of what the end time judgment will be like. Again, Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't a time of torturing and torment. It was a time of destruction. In the New Testament, please don't look all these up right now. I'm just there for your uh, referencing pleasure. Um, and this is something I, I referenced in the last video, so I don't want to spend a, a lot of time here. But this uh, Greek word apaleia, which is translated destruction, is often used, often used to describe the final state of those who reject God. And I have bolded and underlined the verses that I think are most relevant to our conversation that do seem to be talking about um, not some kind of this worldly judgment, um, but an end time judgment of, of God. Okay. So again, you can, you can look these up if you're, uh, and you, you, you know, you make your own kind of interpretive decisions. Um, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not trying to hide these verses from you and saying, just believe what I say. No, I actually want you to do your own study. So I would encourage you to check out those verses. Um, that's the noun for destruction. Uh, Apollune is the verb to die, to kill, to perish. Um, we looked at Matthew 28 in the last, um, in the last talk. Uh, but all, all these passages would encourage you to look up if this is of interest to you. And there's just, there's a lot of them. Okay. Um, where this word occurs in an end time passage to describe the final state of those who reject God. Uh, we also have uh, images from the Gospels, from either John, something John the Baptist said or something Jesus said that 
again, if we're going to ask the question, is Jesus trying to convey the fact that the wicked will be tormented forever and ever? Or is he trying to convey the idea that uh, the wicked will cease to exist, that their life will end? Of those two options, eternal conscious torment versus annihilation, clearly these images convey something like annihilation. Um, just, we can just look at the second one here. You know, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gla- gathering and just pay, just enter into this image, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And some people say, oh, unquenchable fire. See, that's, that's never ending torment. It's like, well, let's look at the image though. Unquenchable fire simply means a fire is so strong, so comprehensive that you can't put it out with water. It's a powerful, powerful fire. <laughs> um, it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever's thrown into that fire will never pass out of existence, but will constantly be living in the state of burning. In fact, if you look at the image, um, the chaff will be burned up. Katakayo is the Greek word for translated to burn up. And it means to fully consume. And if you just follow the image, when you throw chaff or you throw wheat into this massive fire that you can't even put out with water, it's so uncontrollable. What's going to happen to that wheat? Will it be tormented forever or will it simply burn up and pass out of existence? Um, Clearly, the the latter is more accurate to this image. All right, we keep going, okay? I, I don't <laughs> just because again, I want you to see that I'm not. This isn't just a verse here, a verse there. That I do think this is a dominant way of looking at the final state of those who reject God in Scripture. Uh, Jesus says, you know, as weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire. So it will be at the end of the age. So here, you know, he's not just talking about, again, some kind of this worldly judgment. He's talking about the end of the age. Um, At the judgment, God's fiery indignation will consume his enemies. The idea of consume does not convey ongoing torment. It conveys finality, cessation of life. Um, So just, just, uh, we saw this just briefly in the Old Testament, that the image of fire is not an agent of torment. Uh, fire functions in two ways in judgment passages in the Old Testament. One, either as refining fire, like God's going to put you through the fire and you're going to come out better on the other end, or it conveys the idea of an irreversible punishment, not by tormenting, but by consuming. Um, And this is something we see throughout uh, the Gospels in particular, but also in the book of Jude, where fire as an agent of destruction, not torment, is used to refer to the final state of those who reject God. Uh, We looked at this passage when I was giving my um, unbiased representation of all three views. I just want to bring it up again because I do think it's particularly clear. If you're going to ask Peter, what is going to happen to the ungodly in the end? I mean, that's exactly what he says. (laughs) Peter, what is going to happen to the ungodly? Well, it's going to be a lot like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God condemned them. He reduced the cities to ashes, condemning them to extinction, catastrophe, where we get catastrophe from, um, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So this verse alone, I I would at least... um, I, I would I, I would at least want people to say, okay, this verse alone, if this is all we had, clearly annihilation would be the biblical view. You have to at least get there. Now you could say, well, 
But there's other passages that teach something different, and we have to kind of go with these other clearer passages. And you know, I I understand we could do that. We could look at other other passages that would say, well, actually, annihilation isn't the correct view overall. But at least, I mean, this verse alone, I think, is a really clear picture of uh, the annihilation view of hell or conditional immortality. Um, and now. You've seen me go through passage after passage after passage, so I do think that this passage isn't some isolated, random, weird, you know, outlier verse. I do think this passage simply reiterates all the other things that we've looked at so far. Okay, what about the big three? Okay, again, Revelation 20, Revelation 14, and uh, Matthew 25. We'll look at each, each one just briefly. Uh, this one, and I kind of hinted at this in, in my last talk, that when uh, the devil, the the beast, and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire, it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I just do want to point out that, yes, the um, uh, anyone's name who's not found in the, in the written in the book will also be thrown in the lake of fire, but it doesn't say they will be tormented day and night forever. You can assume that because they go to the same place that they will receive the same fate. You can assume that. Uh, but you have to admit that the text doesn't actually say that. So I don't, um, I, I, I don't want to say therefore this ta- passage teaches annihilation. That's not my point. My point is to say, I don't think you can simply quote revelation 20 as clear proof for eternal conscious torment. It does seem to say eternal conscious torment for the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. Within the book of Revelation, though, the beast is clearly the, well, clearly, I mean, everything's debated in Revelation. I I think the best understanding of the beast is that this is the political entity of Rome and political entities that oppose the work of God and the prophet. I I do think that the prophet is not thinking of a necessarily of an individual figure, but as the sort of religious opposition to the movement of God. I do think that the devil is an individual spiritual being, but I I do think that the, you know, devil beast and false prophet, the, you know, uh, at least the beast and the false prophet are, are probably talking about spiritual entities, not just individuals. Um, but again, you don't even need to, you know, follow me for that because um, it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It does not explicitly say that about anyone's name who's not found in the book of life. Um, this one used to be a slam dunk for eternal conscious torment for me, Matthew twenty five forty six, because of the contrast between everlasting punishment and everlasting life. But as I hinted in the last talk, everlasting punishment doesn't have to mean the never ending act of punishing as in the punishment will never quite fully be complete. It's punishing forever and ever and ever. It could mean that the punishment is simply irreversible. Um, If you ask the question, well, what is the punishment? What is the punishment? Um, Throughout scripture, we see that the wages of sin is death. Death is the punishment. Destruction is the punishment. We saw, I mean, again, all the passages we looked at in the Old Testament, it's the cessation of life. You will no longer live. That's the punishment. Well, how long will this death last? Forever. The punishment lasts forever. It's the completed punishment of death. 
that will last forever. Doesn't mean you, that, that that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be living in an ongoing conscious state of being punished for the punishment to be never ending. That's at least I think that's a legitimate way to interpret um, this text. This one to me, Revelation 14, is probably the strongest evidence I would, in my opinion, for eternal conscious torment. Um, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. I would ask a couple questions, though. Is this actually referring to hell? And that's something you need to decide. Go back and read the context. Read Revelation chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I don't, it's not clear that this is talking about end time punishment. We do get that in Revelation 20 and 21 with the lake of fire. This might be some sort of like metaphorical way of God speaking about some punishment in this present uh, day and age. But, he, but you know, um, that's, that's disputed. The whole book of Revelation is disputed, which might also caution us from formulating a doctrine out of a high, simply out of a highly disputed book. What's interesting here, though, is this phrase, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever. This is clearly drawing on Isaiah 34, where it says um, that uh, Edom's, the country of Edom, that their streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning fire, burning sulfur. Uh, Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke will rise forever. The smoke rising forever, I think, is an image for the comprehensive nature of the destruction, not evidence of an ongoing torment. And again, I've, you know, I've been to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not there anymore. I've been to Edom. That Edom, the ancient country of Edom does not exist anymore. God judged Edom and he, like Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of annihilated um, the city. So, and all I want to do is point out that I do think we have to understand not just these images and assume we know what smoke of their torment going up forever and ever means. I think we need to go back to the source text of the Old Testament to try to understand what is this, what did this image originally convey? And maybe that's what it means in this passage here. So, you know, this is going to be a little unfair. I didn't go through every single one of these passages, but, you know, when I wrote Racing Hell with Francis Chan, you know, we were we were pretty impressed with these passages. I, I no longer am that impressed. I, I still think Revelation is, is a tough one. I'm not so impressed with the other ones in terms of supporting eternal conscious torment. But even if they did, I mean, <laughs> um, there's a lot of passages, a lot more passages that from my interpretation, you've seen me you know, how I read these passages, they do seem to support the annihilation view. So that one thing I was taught in Bible college is when you have uh, something that's clearly and pervasively taught in scripture, and if you have a few other scriptures that seem to go against that, you go with the weight of the clear passages and, um, you know, you, you don't you don't disagree with the other passages. You just maybe say, may, maybe there's more to these outlier passages than might meet the eye. Um so um, let me say a quick word about universal reconciliation because I uh, th- th- this argument might um, seem like really pers- per- uh, persuasive for those who hold to this view that just as all people died in Adam, so all people will be made alive in uh, Christ. Or sorry, not died in Adam, but uh, became came under the condemnation of of Adam. And which led to led to death, obviously. Um, 
Well, and, and people, you know, I, I even said like, well, does all mean all? Well, the meaning of all is trickier than some people make it out to be. Um, sometimes the word all means every man, woman, and child. That's true in some passages. Um, sometimes it just means something a little more generic, like all kinds of people. Uh, sometimes the word all is an overstatement. Um, you know, the Pharisee says, they say in the Gospels, you know, all of Jerusalem has gone after Jesus. You know, it's like, really? Every single man, woman, and child, the whole city has been cleared out. There's not a single human soul in the city of Jerusalem. They've all followed Jesus. And like, well, no, it, it, was, a, it was a general statement to mean a whole lot of people. Um, oftentimes in scripture, the word all, the sense behind all is all without distinction. Like Jews and Gentiles is kind of the emphasis. What's interesting in the book of Romans is the first several chapters of Romans, or I would say the book of Romans as a whole, that is a huge emphasis, is to level the playing field to show that Jews don't have better favor with God than Gentiles. It is an equal playing field. We are all under sin. And the emphasis there in Romans 3, we're all under sin, is that even you Jewish people are under sin. Don't think that you get a free pass just because you were born in the line of Abraham. We are all all equally under condemnation, all without distinction. So given that emphasis, and if you if you did a word study on the word all, pantas in the Greek, you would see that it often occurs in passages where there's this emphasis on leveling the playing field, Jew, uh, Gentiles and Jews. So here I would say the emphasis is all without distinction, die in Adam. Even Jews receive the condemnation from Adam's sin. Even Jews are born with a sin nature, Paul might say. And so here, justification and life for all. That includes even you Gentiles, even though some Jewish people in the first century didn't think Gentiles could get into the kingdom without becoming Jews. Um, Paul says, no, all without distinction. And I think the same thing is true here in Romans 11. I mean, the whole chapter of Romans 11 is focusing on this Jew-Gentile distinction, trying to show that Jews are no better off than Gentiles. They all have the same opportunity to follow Jesus. So yes, God has consigned even Jews to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all kinds of people, not necessarily every single man, woman, and child. So that's how I would understand um, these passages. So which one is more biblical? Eternal conscious torment, conditional immortality, or ultimate reconciliation? I truly think that there are biblical passages and arguments that can be used to support each individual view. And um, when I think about the eternal conscious torment, it does make me, I, 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 I am impressed with the weight of tradition that, that supports this view. And I don't want to I don't want to dismiss that lightly. In fact, it's taken me several years to land on conditional immortality because I don't want to pretend like I know more than millions of Christian leaders throughout the centuries, okay? But there's, I, I do have a few pretty significant theologians on my side that would hold to conditional immortality. Um, ultimate reconciliation, We, I think there's, again, biblical arguments that, that can be used. Um, honestly, I feel like these two kind of where I think con if conditional immortality or annihilation is true, then ultimate reconciliation can't be true. This one sort of cancels out this one. Because if upon judgment you're thrown into hell and your life ceases to exist, then there's no hope of turning back to God if you're no longer around. So I, I do think these two, 
um, have to kind of face off with each other and show how the other one is uh, incorrect. But if you hold, if you if you do, if you are persuaded by the biblical evidence for annihilation, then in a sense that kind of rules out ultimate re- reconciliation. But also, I do think there is a, um, a a responsible counterinterpretation to some of the passages used to justify ultimate reconciliation. So, um, thanks for listening again. This is just something to chew on. Um, everything I've summed up, I mean, it's taken me years and hundreds of hours of study and research. I don't expect everybody to just be convinced because you heard it from me, but I would challenge you. Here's my one, one main challenge that everybody must go home with. And that is make sure your beliefs, if you call yourself a Christian, if you say you believe the actual Bible, then make sure your beliefs are rooted in the actual text of scripture, not relying on some traditional assumption about about what you think the text should or must say. Okay, good news is we don't have time for questions. I probably don't have answers. Uh, thank, uh, we are done, but uh, if you do have questions, you can come ask them and I, I'll try and find it in one of the books. So, see you guys.